on this episode of the Classic Sports Car, the ABCs of how Jaguar got into sports car racing. Welcome to the Classic Sports Car, a tribute to the sporting classics of a bygone era. Hi, this is Tom, who for the last 30 years has been turning keys, turning wrenches, and turning over rocks and pages to buy, repair, and learn all about classic sports cars. Well, once again, it's been a little bit of a gap from the last episode, and I want to catch back up on what was covered back in episode eight. In that episode, we talked about what would be the upcoming 2021 Monterey Car Week. Now that's taken place a few months in the past, but I wanted to make a follow-up comment on that in case somebody in the future might be listening or stumbling upon this, and at least there's some continuity moving forward. So in that episode, we talked about some of the potential highlights of Monterey Car Week from 2021. Now, this was the first Monterey Car Week they've had in two years, because in 2020, they canceled it because of COVID. And if we look at the auction results, it totaled $321 million with a sell-through rate of 87%, and that was a big increase from the previous Monterey Car Week in 2019, which was $245.5 million, but it was a little bit below the 2018 tally of $370 million. The average sale price was $310,295, and the top sale was a record $20.65 million sale of a McLaren F1. One of the cars that I highlighted in Episode 8 was a Porsche 917K, which was the car used in the Steve McQueen film Le Mans. And that went to auction, but it did not sell. Turns out bidding went to about $15 million before stalling out. It was originally estimated to sell between 16 and 18 and a half million. So the Porsche 917K may still be out there if you're interested in that vehicle. Another vehicle that I highlighted was a Ford GT40 Mark IV. And this did not sell during the actual auction, where bidding stalled at 2.4 million. The estimates for this vehicle was anywhere between three to three and a half million. Now, if you watch the auction replay, which I did, I went back to YouTube and you can watch the auction and you can see it gets rolled off without selling. And the auctioneer makes a comment about coming to see us afterwards to somebody in the crowd. Now, when you go over to the Bonhams website, it does indicate that it was sold, but no price is given. So it appears that it was some arrangement, some deal was made after the actual auction ended and the vehicle did sell. Now, a little bit more about this GT40 Mark IV. This car was converted to an open cockpit for Can-Am racing after Le Mans changed the rules on engine size to five liters. Now, the Le Mans racing group, whoever the governing board, often does that after one vehicle or one make dominates for a number of years, which the Ford GT40 had done, they'll often change the rules to make things more competitive, or in this case, to kind of uh, prevent that vehicle in that configuration from racing again at Le Mans in that configuration. Now, over at the Hemmings.com website, there was a story back in August of 2021 talking a little bit about this vehicle. And I'm going to pull and I pulled a few items out of that that I found quite interesting about the history of this vehicle. It says the Mark IV edition of the famed sports car was a culmination of chassis design, 
and engineering supremacy for Ford at the time. Unlike its predecessor, it featured an all-new honeycomb chassis that cradled a freshly tuned 7-liter V8 engine. Just eight examples of the Mark IV version of the GT40 were finished, a batch of which were delivered to Le Mans to claim its second win in a row after another grueling 24-hour contest. No sooner had Ford won, however, when new rules from the governing body were announced, limiting maximum engine displacement to 5 liters. Unfortunately for Ford, there were still a pair of 7-liter GT40s under construction, but rather than scrap the effort, chassis J9 and J10 were assigned to Carcraft in Brighton, Michigan, which would oversee their conversion to open cockpit racers in order to compete in Can-Am racing under the new Group 7 rules. Chassis J9 with larger sponsons to accommodate bigger fuel tanks was finished in August of 67. The team then installed a specially developed three-valve all-alloy 427-inch V8, one reportedly designed to compete at Le Mans during 1968 were it not for the rule change, and an adjustable dihedral rear wing similar to that employed by Jim Hall on his chaparrales. Designated G7A, J9 was then subjected to testing both in Ford's corporate wind tunnel and at the test track in the hands of a very capable Mario Andretti. Famously, Andretti went on saying, Chassis J9 was one of the scariest cars he's ever tested. While its design might have rattled the nerves of an accomplished driver, it was visually intriguing enough to land it on the November 1967 cover of Road and Track, accompanied by a cutaway drawing. And Haggerty.com also had an article about this vehicle before it came to auction. And this is what they had to say. Although it's still a plenty desirable car, this sale isn't likely to set new pace for the Mark IV GT40 market. Bottom's pre-sale estimate of three to three and a half million places it right in line with our number four condition, which is fair rating. The main thing holding it back? Lack of competition history. As Haggerty valuation analyst Greg Ingold explains, this is a classic case of it's not about who you are, but what you did. GT40s are rated by race history and originality of major components, more than condition alone, he says. Cars without a winning history or even little race history tend to fall short in value compared to ones that have participated in major races. That might point to a reason why the car kind of stalled out at the auction and didn't sail until afterwards. One last follow-up item from the previous podcast. A new Lamborghini was announced at Monterey Car Week the 2022 Countach 50th Anniversary Special. And if you follow these kind of vehicles in the supercar world, you probably know all about this by now. A lot of complaints kind of came out that it was not actually a new car, but a rebodied and reworked Cyan, which is a heavily modified Aventador. Road and Track indicated that four days after the announcement, all 112 cars had been sold, of course. Cost is between two and a half and three million, depending upon how you spec it. It has 769 horsepower, from the company's familiar 6.5-liter V12 engine, paired with all-wheel drive and a small 33-horsepower capacity-fed electric motor for some torque-filling duties. A little bit more auction news, this from the beginning of the 2022 auction season. This is from SportsCarDigest.com, and it stated that the Mecham auction started the year with a bang. During the recently concluded Mecham Kissimmee 2022, held in Kissimmee, Florida, Beacom Auction recorded a total sale of $217 million with an impressive 90% sell-through rate, which they were able to get during the world's largest collector car auction at Osceola Heritage Park. 
The event took the title of the first collector car auction to surpass 200 million in sales for a single event. So here's some of the highlights of the event. 217 million in sales, the highest total achieved at a single collector car auction. All 11 days had single day auction records for the Kissimmee event. A 90% sell-through rate, which is the highest overall percentage recorded for a Kissimmee event. 2,954 vehicles were sold. And I'll highlight a couple of them that fall in the top 10 that some of our listeners might be interested in that somewhat qualify of that era that we cover here, 50s, 60s, and 70s. So the number one car at the auction, the highest sold vehicle was a 1965 Shelby GT350R prototype, which sold for $3.75 million. Number four was a 1955 Mercedes-Benz 300 SL Gullwing, which sold for $2,640,000. Down at number seven was a 67 Shelby 427 Cobra Roadster, which sold for $1.43 million. And at number 10 was another Mercedes-Benz 300 SL Roadster, this one in 1961, and it sold for $1.375 million. And to wrap up our news section here, this is also from Sports Car Digest. The Morgan Motor Company has announced the release of the Plus 4 LM62. So Morgan Motor Company, one of the few existing sports car manufacturers that has its roots back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. From the article on Sports Car Digest, it said to celebrate the legendary 60th anniversary of their 1962 24 Hours of Le Mans victory, the Morgan Motor Company recently announced the launch of the Plus 4 LM62 to honor the two-liter class-winning Morgan Plus 4 Supersports, which is more commonly known by its registration TOK258. The car will be based on the standard Morgan Plus 4, and it will be limited to only 62 examples. Like the famed race car, the Plus 4 LM62 will have a heritage white hardtop as standard, which is the first time that this item has been made available for a model. Another tribute to the winning Morgan is the LM62 graphics package, which includes roundels with a number 29, like the one on the TOK258, a LM62 rear badge, Le Mans-style fuel filler cap, silver-painted wire wheels, and domed rear panel. Those features are complemented by body color A-pillars, driving spotlights, black splitter and cowl mesh, black mohair side screens, polished stone guard, an active sports exhaust with black tailpipes, and a side screen bag embroidered with the LM62 logo. In the last episode, I highlighted various classic sports cars that were once again available from their original manufacturer as either a restored vehicle or as a continuation model. Over the next couple of episodes, I want to go back to a few of these models and take a look at what made these cars so special in their original form to warrant them being offered as fully restored or continuation models by the manufacturer. In this episode, I want to take a look at the original Jaguar C-Type. So what makes the C-Type special enough to warrant a continuation run? Well, it's really Jaguar's first race car. Jaguar really had no intention of building a race-specific vehicle. That was until they started seeing the racing success some of their customers were having with the XK120. So to understand the C-Type, we need to start with the XK120. In 1948, 
Jaguar launched its first post-war sports car, the XK120. The engine for this vehicle was at the time very sophisticated, a dual overhead cam 3.4 liter straight six. The body was curvy and very aerodynamic, another item quite rare in road-going cars at the time. The car was an instant sales success. Turns out many of the owners of the XK120 also noted its potential and took it racing, with many of them being very successful. This caught Jaguar's eye, especially the fact that two practically stock XK120s finished in the top 20 at Le Mans in 1950. So Jaguar decided to build a version of the XK120 specifically designed for racing. They initially named it the XK120C, C standing for competition, but the name eventually evolved into C-Type to distinguish it from the road-going model. And the C-Type was significantly different from the XK120. Let's take a look at those differences. The XK120 was quite a fast road car. It was named 120 to denote its top speed of 120 miles per hour. It was based on the steel chassis from the Mark V sedan and used an ash wood frame to hold aluminum body panels. It had a 3.4 liter double overhead cam, straight six, twin SU carbs, and output about 160 horsepower. The C-Type had a revised, even more aerodynamic body designed by Malcolm Sayer. He had worked for the Bristol Airplane Company during World War II, and after the war, established an engineering facility at Baghdad University. It was here that he learned many of the design principles that he would later incorporate into shaping the C-Type's racing curves. The goal was to make the C-Type as lightweight and aerodynamic as possible to achieve the highest possible top speeds at places like Le Mans. It ditched the XK120 steel and wood underpinnings for a new lightweight tube frame chassis, one of the first of its type. It kept the 3.4 liter twin cam engine, but horsepower jumped from 160 to just over 200. Thanks to an improved cylinder head, more aggressive camshaft profiles, dual exhaust, and specialized pistons. This combination of higher performance engine and a lighter, more aerodynamic body turned the C-Type into an instant competitor. Amazingly, the C-Type was designed, developed, and tested in just six months. The culmination of that testing phase was sending three cars to Le Mans in 1951. Two of the C-Types failed to finish due to lack of oil pressure, but the third car, driven by Peter Walker and Peter Whitehead, took the overall victory, making the C-Type the first British car to win Le Mans in almost 20 years. Plus, it set several speed and distance records during the race. And just to highlight how good a car the XK120 was, a non-factory, privately owned one finished 11th overall that year. The following year, 1952, C-Type customer car deliveries began and the dual SU carburetors were slightly upsized. But also in 52, Mercedes-Benz was re-entering sports car racing for the first time since the end of World War II, and they were bringing with them the Gullwing W198, also known as the 300SL. Jaguar was a little concerned with the top speed of this car, especially as rumor has it that Sterling Moss got passed by one at the 1952 Mila Miglia, and contacted Jaguar immediately and said, we need more top speed if we're gonna beat this car at Le Mans. So Jaguar quickly modified the C-Type aerodynamics to increase its top speed. Because of this modified body, the cooling system also had to be revised, and there wasn't enough time to test before Le Mans. 
This turned out to be the C-Type's downfall for 52. All three of the factory race cars retired, two due to overheating issues, and the Mercedes 300 SL went on to take first and second place in that race. Testing after the race showed the overheating was caused more by the revision to the cooling system than by the altered aerodynamics. It was determined the water pump pulley was too small, which caused it to spin too fast, which caused the formation of bubbles in the coolant. Also, the header tank was too far from the radiator, and its tubing size was too small. By changing to a larger water pump pulley and increasing the size of the tubing, the overheating problems were solved. In 1953, Jaguar again built three new factory racers for Le Mans and finished one, two, and fourth. The incredible success of the 53 C-types can be contributed to multiple modifications. More weight reduction as a result of thinner aluminum bodywork, a rubber-bagged fuel tank allowed for more weight reduction, triple Weber carburetors and higher lift cams increased horsepower to 220, and a slightly revised rear suspension, which was highlighted by Dunlop disc brakes, which replaced the previous drum units. This is one of the first uses of disc brakes and enabled the Jaguar to outbrake and outcorner all the competition. Duncan Hamilton and Tony Rolt won the race, averaging almost 106 miles per hour, the first time Le Mans had been won at an average of over 100 miles per hour. In the end, some 53 C-types were built, and all but 10 were sold to private customers and in drum brake configuration. Now, this was quite common in this era that a manufacturer would build race cars for their factory team, but also sell these cars to private entries or private individuals who would race them on private teams as another way to help finance their racing team. By 1954, the C-type was replaced by the D-type. Jaguar realized they needed a new vehicle with higher speeds and a little bit more advanced technology if they wanted to stay competitive in the sports car racing world. But even with this newer and more advanced Jaguar, the C-type fielded by a private team finished fourth overall in the 1954 Le Mans. So the C-type still continued to be raced and successfully by non-factory private-based teams. So there's a little history of the original Jaguar C-Type, Jaguar's first entry into sports car racing at what made that vehicle so special and so valuable to warrant it being recreated many years later and sold for multi-millions of dollars just in its continuation form. Well, in future episodes, we'll take a look at the Jaguar D-Type, the car that replaced the C-Type and had even more racing success. Thanks for listening to the show. For additional features, please visit the website at classicsportscar.com. Please join us again for another episode. Until then, I hope to see you out on the road in your own classic sports car.